Father God, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us from it. Uh, We pray that our hearts would be receptive. We pray that you would give us ears to let us hear. And uh, may we truly experience a moment with you as we've already done this morning. May we continue to have that moment with you. In the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. Have you ever been involved in a come to Jesus meeting? (laughs) Ooh, the choir's quite guilty. The choir was like, hey, all of us. You know, uh, in in our context uh, and culture, whenever you get in trouble, and, and it's time to really get the, the, the things ironed out, and, and maybe it's time to set some things straight. Uh, maybe if you're a kid and you got any, maybe you've done something you shouldn't, and I know you find it very hard to believe that I had to have a few come to Jesus meetings with my mama when I was, I know it's hard to believe, but that uh, in our culture, it's kind of a come to mean, uh, a come to Jesus meeting is that we're going to have to get some stuff settled. Well, back in the history of that phrase is back in the great days of the revivals is that they would have literally come to Jesus meetings in which their prayer and their intent was as people gathered that, that they prayed that people would come to meet Jesus at those meetings. And, and we're going to see as we continue to work through the book of Acts now to one of the more familiar passages to us. And, and we're going to see a man who had a, a come to Jesus meeting in the fullest sense of the word. We are reintroduced in this text to a man named Saul. It's not the first time we've seen him. Back in Acts chapter 7 we saw him. In Acts chapter 7 there was a a faithful follower of Jesus by the name of Stephen and Stephen was preaching a a gospel message and it was so despised what he was preaching that they ended up taking his life. They they killed him and the end of Acts chapter 7 tells us that as they were laying down their their cloaks, as they were laying down their garments to stone Stephen, that they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now you may be tempted to think Saul was was passive in the death of Stephen, but he was not. He he might not have picked up a stone and thrown it at Stephen himself, but he was certainly approving of it. But what we're about to see in Acts chapter 9, however, is that this now is a man who is much more active and much more hands-on in his persecution of the church. Notice how Acts chapter 9 begins in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light approached, or a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let me pause here because I, I don't want you to miss the attitude of Jesus toward the persecution of his church. Jesus did not say, 
why are you persecuting them? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus does not see the church as a building. He sees the church as himself. He has so united himself to his church that they are one and the same. That's why when someone says they love Jesus, they just don't like the church, that's impossible because uh, it's, it's simply not biblical for someone to want to follow Jesus but not have some kind of commitment to his church. There is no separation between a person's love for Jesus and their commitment to his church. Verse 5, and Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, a funny verse to me, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Imagine the scene. Saul thought that he saw so clearly, but now he's being led by the hand because he is blind. Saul, the man who seized others, is now himself seized by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there was a disciple, verse 10, at Damascus named Ananias. Not to be confused with Ananias, we saw earlier, that guy's dead, this is a different Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, not Iscariot, a different Judas, at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I am quite positive, I wasn't there, I'm reading the text, but I am quite positive that at this moment Ananias said, uh, what? Uh, for, for a second, I thought you said to go see Saul. That's a good one, JC, man. I hadn't heard that one before. This is, this is what it would be like, okay? Just get to, this is as close as I can think to explain what's happening here. Rewind your mind back to the week after September 11th after the attacks on America's soil. What if Jesus had shown up the next day at your house and clearly said, hey, look, I need you to drive down to Navarre because I have there a man, Osama bin Laden. Can't miss him, long beard, big turban, you'll see him. He'll stick out in Navarre. And I have saved him. And I want you to bring him back to your house for the weekend and carry him to church with you on Sunday. How many of us are going, uh-huh, what? <laughs> this is what it's like for Ananias to hear these words. That's very similar to the feelings you think Ananias would have. In fact, look at the feelings that he had. Verse 13. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul had a come to Jesus meeting. And it changed everything about him. He was transformed. In fact, the Saul that you see in Acts chapter 9 and verse 18 and 19, as he was taking food and he was strengthened, it tells us, that Saul is much different than the Saul that you see in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. He met Jesus, or maybe better suited, better stated, Jesus met Jesus. You see, the desire of Jesus today is the same. Jesus wants to meet people where they are in their sin, save them from that sin, and transform them. It was the Apostle Peter who in one of his letters reminded us of this truth where he said that the Lord is not slow concerning his promise to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but God is patient towards you. He's patient toward those who have yet to repent, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's goal is for everyone to have a come to Jesus meeting. So let's use the example of Saul this morning and notice what happened when he came to Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's the same thing that happens to people today, no matter what road we're on or where we are, when we have a come to Jesus meeting. I'll mention three things to you. First, Meeting Jesus opens our eyes so that we can see our sin. It opens our eyes so we can see our sin. You notice how that when when Saul met Jesus, he was blinded. The blindness of Saul is a picture spiritually of all people who are separated from God. If you are separated from God this morning, you are blind to your sin. But when you meet Jesus, he opens your eyes so you can see your sin and your need to confess and to repent. Those without Christ will always be blinded to their own sin. Now that takes uh, shape and form in a couple of different ways. Some people have what I call uh, rebellious blindness. 
That, that is to say, that's when you believe that your way is better than God's way. Or that for whatever reason, you believe that you really don't know or don't need God. Those with religious blindness, pursue, or rebellious blindness rather, pursue sin. And the middle letter of sin is I. The mantra of rebellious blindness is I'd rather be in charge of my life. I know what's better for my life, and I know better than God what is for my life. And you know what? When you start off in that way, things may seem to be okay. Those who are rebelliously blinded by sin, they may think they've got it figured out. Because sin at the outset can be a lot of fun. But let me tell you something about sin. It always overpromises and underdelivers. And when someone begins to pursue sin, when you begin to think that your life can be complete without Jesus and you, you want to fill in the blank of Jesus with something else. If you think that by pursuing your own fame or by pursuing that promotion or by pursuing that next accomplishment, that that will give you satisfaction. What you find out is when you get what you think you wanted, you end up wanting more. When you get what you think would make you happy, you find yourself not that happy. When you get what you think would bring you peace, you find out it hasn't brought you peace because sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not one of those rebellious, blind sinners. Well, that means that you've got religious blindness. <laughs> now, there are some people who have religious blindness, and that is to say that, that you think you can be good enough to earn God's approval. You, you think that if you try hard enough that, that God will accept you. I think about back at the Garden of Eden, <coughs> Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, it tells us they, 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 were, they were naked and they, they knew no shame. They were clothed both physically but also spiritually. They were clothed in the love and acceptance of God. But then something happened. They sinned. And when they sinned, Scripture tells us, they realized their nakedness and they covered themselves in shame. Now that happened physically, but I believe it was meant to teach us a spiritual lesson. Because when we realize that we are sinners, we try to cover our shame before God. And most people try to cover their shame before God by doing good things and trying to be good enough. But the problem is, how do you know when you've been good enough? Well, when I'm better than the person sitting beside me. Well, you ain't got to answer the person sitting beside you. Who do you have to answer to? God. God. And so your standard then becomes, am I as good as God? Can I be good enough to earn God's favor? And those who try to clothe themselves with, with what they do, and in that effort to earn God's favor, that will either lead you to pride, where for some reason you think you're better than everybody else. Anybody know someone who thinks they're better than everybody else? Anybody hang around with that person very long? Absolutely not. They're most arrogant people. You can't be around those people. So it leads you to that, or it leads you to despair, because you realize you can never, ever do enough. Now contrast both rebellious blindness 
and religious blindness, contrast that with the message of the gospel that the apostle Paul, who at first is Saul, comes to realize. The message of the gospel is that our meeting with Jesus is an act of grace. That salvation is Jesus dying in our, pay, in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, clothing us, not with our good works, but clothing us in his righteousness and in his resurrection, giving us the power for a new life and a new heart. The apostle Paul experiences this as Saul on the Damascus. Road. And even though his physical eyes were blind, God gave his spiritual eyes enough ability to see his own sin. From this point forward, you check out Paul's life. From this point forward, Paul will talk much more about the grace of God than his own self-righteousness. He will refer to his own self as being the chief of sinners. He will admit in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, he'll say, the things that I want to do and I know I need to do, I don't end up doing. And the things I don't need to do as I end up doing them. The things that make me righteous, I don't do. The things that, that would cause me to sin, I end up doing. Can I get a witness this morning? Yeah. Paul comes to realize the greatness of God's grace when his eyes are opened to his own sin. Having his eyes opened, Paul did not want people admiring what his flesh could do. He wanted people to run to his Savior. And when you meet Jesus, your eyes will be opened to your sin. And you'll be moved to seek the grace of God to do something about it. Second, this happens. Meeting Jesus changes our hearts so we can experience salvation. It opens our eyes to see our sin, but as Saul's example teaches us, it also changes our hearts so we can experience salvation. Paul's meeting shows us that no heart, no life is beyond God's ability to change. There is nothing you can do that will disqualify you from the candidacy to receive the grace of God. In fact, uh, you even see this in how, how he changes his own name. God doesn't change his name. He chooses to change his own name. We're introduced to him as Saul. Saul is a mighty strong Jewish name. Saul was the name of the first great king of Israel. And he's named after that king. He changes his name to Paul. He didn't do that because he no longer liked S's, okay? <laughs> the reason he changed it, you know, you know what the word Paul means, the name means? It means small. I know we're doing a lot of sound alike, Saul, small, Paul, Hall. You know. The name Paul means small. He would spend the rest of his life 
talking about himself as a small man who was the recipient of the great grace of God. The gospel does for Paul what his religion could never do. Oh, he was a religious person, but then he met Jesus. The gospel does for us what religion could never do. The gospel, and the gospel alone can change your heart. Oh, religion might make you conform, but only the gospel can help you transform. And Paul would spend his life talking to us about this grace. He would tell us, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he would remind us that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. This salvation, this grace is a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Listen, hear me this morning. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. Salvation is not about you trying. It's about you trusting. It's not about success in what you have done. It is about faith in what has been done for you. Jesus saved Saul. The murderer, the persecutor, the instigator, the hater. And if he saved Saul, my friend, he can save you. Meeting Jesus changes our hearts so we can experience salvation. Number three, meeting Jesus redirects our passion so we can serve his kingdom. It redirects our passion so we can serve his kingdom. Look back with me in verse 15. We're going to hit verse 15 next week as well. But, but look at what the Lord says to Ananias about Saul slash Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Oh, don't miss this, friend. God took the greatest enemy of the church. God took a man with the blood of the saints on his hands. He transformed his heart. He saved him. Then he put him in front of kings with the message of salvation on his lips. The church's greatest enemy became the church's greatest missionary. That's just how God works. What happened? God changed, or I should say he redirected the passion of Paul. Oh, Paul was a passionate man before his conversion. If you don't believe that, go back and read verse 1. He was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He was, he was a man who was full of passion. It's just that his passion was redirected towards something holy and honorable. Let me ask you this morning, what makes you feel disqualified from being an instrument in the hands of God? Is it some mistake that you've made in the past? 
Is it some sin that you're struggling with right now? Hear me, what we see from the Apostle Paul is this truth born throughout all of Scripture. God specializes in taking messes and making masterpieces out of them. He specializes in taking what is broken and making something beautiful out of it. In fact, I'd go so far to say this. I think I would. Yeah, I would, because I'm about to say it. (laughs) If you think you've got it all together, if you think your life is all that without any blunders and scars, I don't know that God can use you. But I do know that God can use those who admit to him that they're nothing without him. I know God can use those who's made some messes because he's an expert at taking a mess and making a masterpiece out of it. In fact, the very thing that you feel disqualifies you can be redeemed by God and then used by God as an instrument of redemption. I've always been fascinated at at Paul's words as he opens up Romans chapter 10. He's talking about how he, he wants to see the salvation of the Israelites. And he says in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, he said, For I bear them witness, the Israelites that I see, I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. They have a passion for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's directed in the wrong place because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God, that they're trying to establish their own, and they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Notice the connection. His passion was for their salvation because they had a misplaced zeal. They had a misplaced passion. The very same thing Paul had himself. And God was able to use his past to give him a passion to reach those who had a past similar to his. May I submit to you this morning that God has saved you from the circumstances he has saved you from so that you will be able to better help people in the same circumstances. You hear me? That God's taken you out of some circumstances. He's delivered you from from some circumstances so that you can be better able to help those in the same kinds of circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God, watch this, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God has brought comfort to us 
so we can be conduits of God's comfort to other people. Sometimes the things you struggle with the most, sometimes the pain you go through, those things make you uniquely qualified to be used by God to speak hope to others in similar situations. God can redirect your passion to serve Him regardless of your past. If He can do it with Saul slash Paul, he can do it with you. Paul had a come to Jesus meeting and it changed his life. So let me ask you as we wrap things up this morning. His eyes were opened to his sin which caused him to see his need of a Savior. Do you realize your sin today? Have your eyes been opened to the need for forgiveness? His heart was transformed as he received salvation by grace through faith. Has your heart been transformed? Have you received salvation? His passion was redirected so he could serve God's kingdom. Have you asked God to use your past, all of your past, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to help serve his kingdom purpose? Here's the thing about a come to Jesus meeting. Every single person must have one. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I've said this a few times from this pulpit over these few years, but I want to say it again. Everybody's going to meet Jesus. You either meet him on this side of eternity in this come to Jesus meeting that Paul had, where your eyes are open to your sin, your, your heart receive salvation from Jesus and he changes your passion to serve his kingdom. You either have that on this side of eternity which leads to salvation or you have it on the other side of eternity but it doesn't bring salvation then it's too late. It brings judgment. So if you have to meet Jesus anyway Why don't you meet him as a Savior? Because from what Scripture tells me, we do not want to meet him as a judge. There is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In just a moment we're going to pray, and after we pray we're going to stand and sing. Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to your sin today? Do you want to know what it means to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior? How that salvation is a gift given to you? If you've got questions about what that means, then during this time of commitment, that's that's why we're here. We're here to help walk with you through that, to understand that we can't make that decision for you, and, and we don't force you to make that decision. But we place it before you so you can be, it can be clearly understood and, and we ask you to make a decision one way or the other. 
Would today be a day that you would have a come to Jesus meeting? Maybe you've had that meeting in the past and you've got that relationship with Jesus and he's changed that passion. But the thing about passion is and the thing about uh, our desire is that left unchecked it always will gravitate back to its old way of life. Have you asked God to use your past? Maybe your, maybe your struggle's current. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't read your emails. I haven't talked to your spouse. Nothing else. So I'm not, I'm not thinking of anybody when I'm saying this other than me. Is there something in your life right now that you think is beyond God's ability to use? If you'll surrender that to Him, past or present, He'll use it in ways that you're not even thinking of that you can't even imagine. Because He's just that kind of God who can take a blunder and cause a blessing to come from it. I'm going to pray then all I ask you to do is whatever God's asking you to do this morning. Father God, I thank you that when we meet Jesus, He changes everything. And I pray today, if there's one here who has not yet admitted their sin to you, and they've not yet thrown themselves upon the grace that you're offering to them, Lord, today may this be the day they have a come to Jesus meeting where they place on the altar their sin and they receive from you salvation. That they stop trying to achieve goodness by what they do and they trust in what you have done for them. And Father, I pray for all of us in this room because we all have a past. I pray we would surrender those mistakes, we'd surrender those seasons of our lives to you. And ask you to take away the shame of those seasons. And sanctify us through them. And then use those seasons to help others. Redirect our hearts and our lives today. Whatever you're calling us to do, Lord, help us to say yes. In Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.